Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, March 1st, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's news. The Supreme Court agrees to hear Trump's immunity appeal. Trump is disqualified from the Illinois primary ballot. Over 100 Palestinians are killed after Israeli troops open fire near aid trucks. An opposition leader in Chad is killed in a gunfight. The U.S. will investigate Chinese-made smart cars for national security risks. Transportation staff strike in Greece on the anniversary of a tragic train crash. France's parliament votes to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. Ghana's parliament passes an anti-LGBTQ bill. Wildfires rage through the Texas panhandle. And the South Korean government threatens legal action over a doctor strike. In our first story, the Supreme Court will hear Trump's immunity appeal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, Sky News, The Financial Times, and CBS. The conservative-majority U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday agreed to hear Republican former President Donald Trump's claims of immunity from prosecution for acts he committed as president. The Supreme Court set the week of April 22nd to hear oral arguments, with a decision expected by late June. Last year, it rejected a plea from U.S. Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith to bypass the U.S. Court of Appeals and hear the matter immediately. Though the court has previously acknowledged that U.S. presidents are immune from civil liability, Trump, the frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, is reportedly also seeking protection from criminal liability. The U.S. Court of Appeals rejected his immunity claim earlier this month. Smith brought a four-count indictment against Trump in the case involving the former president's alleged role in attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Trump on Truth Social posted his agreement with the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case and continued to contend presidents need immunity or they could be paralyzed by the prospect of wrongful prosecution and retaliation after they leave office. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts, and our first spin is the pro-Trump narrative from Fox News. This crucial case, which could determine the future of presidents to do their job free of fear of prosecution or coercive tactics by political opponents, is being fast-tracked to SCOTUS. The sides have just a few weeks to prepare their cases before the highest court in the land, Here's their arguments and then rules on this major issue. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from the New Republic. The Supreme Court could hear this case today or tomorrow, but instead it's slow-walking it, in effect dangerously granting Trump his immunity. This shouldn't be a surprise considering the conservative majority was shaped by Trump's three confirmed nominees. Now this case is unlikely to be resolved before the election leaving voters without all the information they need and possibly leading to Trump killing it in his second term. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 10% chance that a dispute that determines the outcome of the 2024 U.S. presidential election will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2024 or 25. Trump is disqualified from the Illinois primary ballot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Circuit Court of Cook County, Illinois, the Illinois State Board of Elections, the Colorado Supreme Court, and the Associated Press. 
Former President Donald Trump is ineligible to be included on the Illinois Republican primary ballot, according to a county court judge who ruled Trump's actions related to the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol were in violation of Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. This ruling follows a recommendation by the Illinois State Board of Elections hearing officer on January 30th to dismiss a petition to remove Trump from the state's primary ballot. Although the recommendation claimed, even giving Trump the benefit of the doubt, there was a preponderance of evidence the former president incited insurrection. The hearing officer determined that under state law, the election board couldn't remove him from the ballot. In a similar case, Colorado Supreme Court decided to remove the former president from the state's ballot. That ruling is currently being reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court following an appeal by Trump. The two rulings are on hold until the Supreme Court decides whether Trump is eligible to remain on the Colorado ballot. Thank you for those facts, Scott. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from The Daily Caller. This decision is disgraceful and a symbol of a continued hubris of woke election influencers attempting to prohibit Trump's democratic rights. While the Supreme Court is destined to reinstate the former president back onto the ballots, the arrogance of a county court to interfere with a national election should worry everyone who values democracy. And CNN brings us an anti-Trump narrative. When majorities in the U.S. Senate and House in 2021 moved forward with Trump's second impeachment, he was officially designated as an insurrectionist. The Constitution is clear about the consequences insurrectionists face. So Trump should be removed from the ballots because a Trump run for America's highest office will place the U.S. democratic value system in irreversible danger. And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 5% chance that Trump will be removed or blocked from the primary ballot of any U.S. state for a federal office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Have Uh, you ever been disqualified from anything, Scott? Let's see. I got kicked out of a bar once and banned, and I still to this day wonder if I go back, there's going to be like a picture of me on the wall. I'd be kind of disappointed if there wasn't. (laughs) Um, How old were you? I was, let's see, it was probably like 22 or something. Uh, yeah, All Quinn's right. in Southington, Connecticut. I was uh, told never to come back. Oh, man. What, did you uh, break a bar stool over someone's head? Okay, must I get into it here? <laughs> so... I've been disqualified from the, the summer swim team for on the butterfly for not having my feet kept together. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, I'm like eight years old. I'm not a great swimmer. You know, I got stronger because of swim team. You have to flap your, I guess that's the term. It's a technical swimming term. You have to flap your feet like a mermaid tail, right? That's inherent in that form of swimming. In a butterfly, you got to flap both feet at the same time with your butterfly flap. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't keep my feet together because I was always afraid I was going to (laughs) drown. And so if I got like my breath got weird, like my breathing got weird, I would just start flailing until I kind of got it back. So I I would often get disqualified from that one. Israeli troops fire on a Palestinian crowd, killing over 100 people. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Axios, the Associated Press, and the New York Times. Palestinian officials and eyewitnesses on Thursday reported that Israeli forces opened fire on a crowd of Palestinians gathered around newly arrived aid trucks in western Gaza City. Over 100 people were killed by the gunfire and resulting chaos. Israel disputed the number of fatalities and called its actions a limited response. Israel said that hundreds of people surrounded the truck, leading to some being run over. 
Then remnants of the crowd reportedly approached nearby Israeli forces, who first fired warning shots before shooting at whom they deemed a threat. Contrasting the Israeli military's telling of the incident, an Al Jazeera reporter who was present at the scene said that Israeli forces opened fire on Palestinians trying to get flour. Israeli tanks then advanced into the area, allegedly running over the dead and injured. Gaza's health ministry labeled the incident a massacre. Referring to the incident, U.S. President Joe Biden said on Thursday that it would complicate the current ceasefire negotiations. The White House said that it had asked Israel to thoroughly investigate and provide more information about the context. Biden also walked back comments he made earlier this week, saying that a ceasefire deal would be agreed upon by this coming Monday, saying instead that he was hopeful, but that it was unlikely that this timeline would be achieved. Gaza's health ministry said on Thursday that the war's official death toll has surpassed 30,000 Palestinians most of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll on October 7 stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CBS. Due to the complicated nature of unfortunate incidents like this one, Israel must conduct a thorough investigation to maintain its moral high ground and demonstrate that it's serious about ending the war. The U.S. has proudly stood by Israel in its war against Hamas's terrorist forces. However, with every passing day that a temporary ceasefire is not in effect, Israel loses the strategic gains it has made and isolates itself on the international stage. The Jerusalem Post gives us a pro-Israel narrative. Thursday's tragic security incident was an unfortunate reminder of one of the many difficulties of one of the many difficulties Israel is facing. Footage from the incident clearly shows hundreds of Palestinians aggressively attacking the aid truck, and Israeli forces did their best in a bad situation. The international community, even as it forgets Hamas's October 7 atrocities, must remember that Israel did not want this war, and it has been forced to take dramatic action to ensure its survival. We have a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Israel has committed yet another terrible massacre in Gaza, only to be greeted with calls for an investigation and restraint. There already is more than enough evidence to suggest that Israeli forces fired indiscriminately into crowds of terrified and hungry Palestinians barely managing to survive. Indeed, this massacre is another reminder of the lack of accountability Israel faces as it mercilessly continues its brutal campaign against Palestinians. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 65% chance that Israel will have de facto power of the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. An opposition leader is killed in a gunfight in Chad. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, New York Times, and Al Jazeera. The leader of Chad's opposition Socialist Party Without Borders, or PSF, Yaya Dio, was killed during a gun battle involving security forces near the party's headquarters in the capital, N'Djamena. This follows separately reported gunfights on Wednesday in which the government claims members of the PSF opened fire on the National Security Agency, adding that a member of PSF, Ahmed Tarabi, tried to assassinate the head of the Supreme Court. However, the PSF claims that it was soldiers who fired upon its party members and then dumped Tarabi's body at the organization's headquarters, adding that his relatives were fired upon when they went looking for his remains. Chad is run by President Mahamat Idris Debi Itno. 
who took power after his father was killed in 2021, an incident analysts believe was a coup, but hasn't been criticized by the West as much as coups in nations like Niger and Sudan. Dio is the president's cousin and notable critic. Dio had called the attack on the security agency, which took place hours after the country announced it would hold elections on May 6th, staged. After postponing the election over the past 18 months, Devi has now pledged to hand over power to an elected government. This also follows a Supreme Court ruling in December, allowing the country to vote on a new constitution, though critics believe it will be used to keep Devi in power. Here is Narrative A from the Washington Post. Due to violent outbursts from members of the PSF, the past few days have been tragic for the people of Chad. Yaya Dio led an attempted coup against the security agency, which resulted in soldiers returning fire and ending his life, along with those of his fellow militants. Agencia Nova brings us Narrative B. This was not a coup attempt by the PSF, but rather President Debbie's latest attack on his political opponents. Weeks before the tragedy, Debbie's intelligence forces and riot police surrounded the home of another opposition candidate and arrested him. If this was a coup, it was a coup against democracy in Chad. And here's another nerd narrative saying there's a 45% chance that Chad will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. The U.S. will investigate a security threat from Chinese smart cars. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, The Verge, The Associated Press, ABC News, CNN, and The New York Post. The U.S. on Thursday announced an investigation into potential security threats posed by Chinese-made smart vehicles, citing concerns about technology that could collect data on U.S. citizens. The U.S. Department of Commerce will carry out the investigation, which will focus on connected vehicles, ones that use network connections for features such as roadside assistance or GPS. The inquiry could lead to future regulations regarding certain car parts. In a statement, President Joe Biden stopped short of halting Chinese imports, but said he would not allow China to use unfair practices that could pose national security risks in order to dominate the auto market. This comes as his administration looks to crack down on spying by foreign adversaries. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said the U.S. wants to investigate Chinese vehicles before they become widespread, in a country where they have yet to gain major traction due to high tariffs. While the White House is mainly concerned with China using technology and cars to spy on U.S. drivers, a senior administration official said there are also concerns about Russia, Iran, and Venezuela exploiting connected vehicles. The investigation will also look into American manufacturers to see where they buy their parts and license their software. All right, thanks for that interesting story, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative from the Washington Post. The U.S. isn't playing games when it comes to potential security threats posed by Chinese cars, and this unprecedented investigation is a show of strength. It may be too easy for bad actors in Beijing to interfere with the operation of a car or steal data in the U.S., and the U.S. won't stand for it. Here's the pro-China narrative from the South China Morning Post. China has implemented strict oversight policies to prevent illegal data gathering, but Washington is again stoking baseless fears about a threat from China. This is nothing more than the U.S. combining an investigation with its high tariffs to attack the Chinese automotive industry and gain a competitive edge. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 12% chance there will be a U.S.-China war before January 1st, 2035. 
I must have been like four or five years old. This is an early memory. And and my parents took us on a ferry and I was and I just it blew my mind. I was like, what is happening? What kind of ferry are you riding in Texas? What are we talking about here? Oh, we got the Gulf of Mexico, but I don't actually remember where we were. We might have been on the East Coast because I have some family there. Um, but yeah, we were like driving our car onto a boat. I'm losing my mind right now. Yeah. What is happening? The ferry that a car goes on is very weird transportation. Yeah. Right? It's kind of, it's kind of just cool and weird. I mean, it kind of has like a transformer feel. Like there's a car. Like I was always fascinated. You know, Night Rider, the computerized car. Oh yeah. I was more fascinated, less with the you know self intelligent car that drove itself and could talk with and everything. I was more interested that it drove into the tractor trailer truck while they were both driving on the highway. Oh yeah. Like it was, I was more interested in that than the, the super intelligent computer car. Yeah, no, I, I love a super intelligent car, but that is way more exciting as a physical lizard brained human. Who's like yeah. watching exciting things happen. Transport staff strike on the anniversary of Greece's deadly train crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the NASDAQ, France 24, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and ABC News. Tens of thousands of Greek transportation workers went on strike on Wednesday seeking better pay and working conditions in commemoration of the first anniversary of the country's deadliest train crash on record, in which 57 people were killed in the city of Tempe. While trains, ferries, taxis, and the metro experienced major disruptions due to the 24-hour strike, at least 20,000 people protested on the streets of Athens, and another 10,000 demonstrated in the northern city of Thessaloniki. The strikes brought public transport to a standstill in Athens and left ferries tied up in ports as unions protested wage controls implemented since Greece's financial crisis. However, flights ran as scheduled after a court ruled that air traffic controllers couldn't take industrial action. Protesters also requested a 10% unilateral raise and increased hiring, claiming that recent pay increases, the first public sector raises in 14 years, don't sufficiently offset the rising cost of living. Many protesters, including students, accused the government of not doing enough to prevent last year's tragedy in which a Thessaloniki-bound train heading from Athens collided with a freight train at high speed. Many of the victims of the head-on collision on February 28, 2023, blamed by protesters on an unsafe transit system, were students. Investigators will conclude questioning for their official inquiry into the crash on March 8th and are set to deliver a definitive account of the tragedy. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And here is the establishment critical narrative from Eurotopics. One year after Greece's deadliest transit crash, we are no closer to justice for the victims and their families. Greek politicians and officials ignored cries to fix a broken transportation system for decades. However, they did little to improve safety until last year's tragedy that killed 57 and injured dozens more. In addition to their failure to deliver swift justice regarding the Tempe crash, government officials have neglected public sector workers who require a legitimate pay raise. Protesters are justified in demonstrating, and the Greek people deserve more accountability from their leaders. And the pro-establishment narrative from Bloomberg News. The Tempe train collision shook Greece to its core, leaving the nation grieving. The pain and anger of the victims and their families is 100% understandable, and everyone is demanding answers. 
The Greek justice system is doing all it can to get to the bottom of last year's tragedy and deliver a definitive account to the people. The investigation goes beyond discovery and looks to deliver justice and accountability. There's no way to undo the destruction of the crash, but the Greek government will do everything in its power to bring about justice and reconciliation. French Parliament votes to enshrine abortion rights. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Euronews, The Telegraph, and The New York Times. After passing in the lower chamber of Parliament, the French Senate on Wednesday voted 267 to 50 to make abortion a constitutional right. Both chambers will vote again on Monday, and if the bill passes with a three-fifths majority, a referendum vote will be unnecessary. One line in the provision states, the law determines the conditions under which the right is guaranteed to a woman to resort to voluntarily terminating a pregnancy. While access to abortion, which was decriminalized in France in 1975, isn't seen as at risk in France, the proposed amendment came in response to recent laws and court rulings that have rolled back national abortion rights in countries like the U.S. and Poland. Most of the 50 senators who voted against the amendment didn't take an anti-abortion stance, but rather argued that enshrining it into the Constitution would create a hierarchy of rights. The effort to include abortion in the Constitution follows the government's extension of the abortion limit to 14 weeks of pregnancy, up from the original 10 weeks limit set in 1975. Thanks, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin from CBC. While this vote certainly fits France's history of leading the fight for abortion rights, it was also a strong response to the U.S. reversal of Roe v. Wade. As emerging right-wing governments push to roll back women's rights, leading liberal countries in the West should take inspiration from France and work to codify this human right within their own governments. Here's the right narrative from Detroit Catholic. The abortion debate in France has become so taboo that only the most ardent supporters of abortion on demand have been allowed to speak freely. Even pro-life advocates aren't calling for complete bans, but what they are asking for is the ability to educate the public on the alternatives to terminating pregnancies. Social services should be designed to give people all options. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying that there's a 56% chance that there will be a 10x growth in the number of legal abortions conducted by Poland by 20. Ghana's parliament passes an anti-LGBTQ bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Monitor. The Guardian, Daily Trust, Africa News, Jurist, and Al Jazeera. Ghana's parliament on Wednesday unanimously passed a bill that restricts the rights of LGBTQ plus people. The legislation, reportedly one of the strictest in Africa, is widely supported in the West African country, though rights activists have condemned it. The bill stipulates that anyone who identifies as LGBTQ plus can be punished with up to three years in prison, while anyone who creates or sponsors LGBTQ plus groups can be jailed for up to five years. The bill now heads to President Nana Akufu-Addo for it to be reviewed and signed into law. The legislation also calls for sentences of up to 10 years in prison for those involved in LGBTQ plus campaigns, focused on children, and encourages the public to report members of the LGBTQ plus community to the authorities so that necessary action can be taken. Rights groups have urged the president not to assent to the Sexual Rights and Family Values Bill, terming it as a setback for human rights. UN Rights Chief Volker Turk has called for the bill to be rejected, arguing consensual same-sex conduct should never be criminalized. 
Akufo Otto has previously said that he would never approve of gay marriage as long as he is the president. The bill, a stricter version of the colonial-era law, is backed by a coalition of Christian, Muslim, and traditional Ghanaian leaders. Per the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association, homosexuality is currently illegal in about 30 African countries. While some countries have decriminalized gay marriage, South Africa is the continent's only nation to have legalized it in 2006. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Here's the narrative A from modern Ghana. It's outrageous that the so-called human rights organizations are meddling in Ghana's affairs and lecturing the nation. The law passed unanimously by parliament reflects the people's will. Like many countries in Africa, Ghana recognized that the West is pushing its permissive agenda, which is not aligned with traditional values. Ghana should be applauded for resisting outside pressure and manipulation, and the president should sign the bill into law to protect Ghana's social fabric and culture. And narrative B comes from Ghana Web. The bill is a slap in the face to Ghana's LGBTQ community and a major social setback. No one should be punished for who they are. But that's what this disturbing law does. It's inconsistent with Ghana's tradition of tolerance, which has been rooted in society since pre-colonial times. This legislation threatens not only the rights of LGBTQ plus people, but also those of all Ghanaians, undermining democratic principles. The president must reject this bill to safeguard Ghana's international reputation and economic process. There's another nerd narrative saying there's a 10% chance that Ghana will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. I actually have friends who just moved to Ghana. Oh, really? Just moved back to Ghana. Yeah. So Uh, they're they're originally from Ghana. So they're they're Lebanese. Okay. Um, They came uh, in the in the late eighties, early nineties. They got forced out of Lebanon. Gave all their money to these folks to get them to Europe, so they could come to America. Um, They got stuck in Ghana because the people who brought them they brought them as far as Ghana. Yeah, that's pretty far from home. Yeah, and then said, uh, "Your money's gone. We're gonna leave now." Um, wow! I, I just kind of took everything and, and left them in Ghana. So they lived. Uh, they grew up in Ghana, <laughs> and right, and they actually fell in, in love with it. So um, they moved back. Texas wildfires engulf one million acres. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, CNN, Al Jazeera, and Fox Weather. The Smokehouse Creed fire in Texas has now engulfed over one million acres, making it the largest wildfire in the state's history. Satellite images have shown it's now spreading into Oklahoma. Smokehouse Creek, which has burned over 400,000 acres in just Hemp Hill County and reportedly destroyed 115 miles of power lines, is the largest of three fires currently burning in the Texas Panhandle. The Windy Deuce fire has simultaneously burned 142,000 acres and is 40% contained. And the Grapevine Creek fire has burned 30,000 acres with 60% of flames contained. Smokehouse Creek coincided with 100 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures in Killeen, 93 degrees Fahrenheit in Dallas, and 82 degrees Fahrenheit in Amarillo which is about a 20-degree Fahrenheit temperature anomaly than the typical February temperature. One death has been reported due to the blaze, an 83-year-old woman. Smoke Creek grew from 300,000 acres to 850,000 on Wednesday before topping 1 million by Thursday. After a cold spell hit the state, a reported 2.5 inches of snow fell Thursday morning. 
though its only benefit is believed to be keeping humidity elevated for a day. High temperatures are expected to hit again by Saturday alongside winds up to 45 miles per hour. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A on this story comes from the New York Times. As climate change heats up the atmosphere, Texas has endured hotter and drier summer and spring seasons, resulting in the wildfire season starting earlier and ending later. This has also caused a disproportionate amount of burned acreage in the panhandle. This not only affects the environment we live in, but also has raised Texans' homeowners insurance by over 50%. The physical and economic damage from climate change cannot be overstated. And here's the narrative B from Reason. While wildfires have certainly gotten worse in recent years, part of the problem has been the government's decades-long policy of immediately extinguishing every fire everywhere. This practice is ill-advised because brush burning is often a natural way to rejuvenate grass and soil. Another reason fires have gained so much attention recently is that never before has America seen so many homes being built on the edges of forests. The government needs to take a step back and find new preventative solutions before more lives are lost. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 million hectares of global tree cover in any year by the end of 2030. The government threatens legal action in the South Korean doctor strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, ABC News, Al Jazeera, NBC News, and BBC News. Junior doctors in South Korea are expected to continue their strike against the government's plan to drastically increase the quota for medical students in the country, even as the government threatens to revoke their medical licenses and potentially pursue legal action. The South Korean government set a Thursday deadline for medical interns and residents to return to work. But as of Wednesday night, 9,000 of the country's 13,000 junior doctors left their hospitals after submitting resignations, while only 294 had returned to work. Thousands of junior doctors went on strike early last week. Vice Health Minister Park Min-soo said that striking doctors would avoid repercussions if they returned on Thursday, and the government will announce formal steps toward penalties on Monday. Park said he invited striking doctors to hold discussions, but the Korean Medical Association critiqued the government's intimidation tactics, refusing to comment on negotiations. South Korean law allows the government to order doctors to return to work for public health risks. The walkouts center around the government's plan to increase the number of medical school admittees from 3,000 to 5,000, with aims of adding 10,000 new doctors by 2035 to support a rapidly aging population. However, strikers say the plan will only increase the number of subpar doctors. While trainee doctors account for a relatively small percentage of South Korea's doctors, they make up 40% of the staff at some larger hospitals. Many junior doctors complain that they work 100-hour weeks and are being exploited for cheap labor. Here's Narrative A from the Korea Herald. South Korean junior doctors have legitimate reasons to continue their protests and the government would be wise to listen to them instead of threatening the nation's youngest medical professionals. Despite an aging population, the South Korean medical system is running smoothly, and there is no reason to impose a near 70% increase in the number of medical students. This rash and dramatic decision would only decrease the quality of medical education and promote unqualified prospective students. 
Instead, the government should work to fairly compensate medical interns and residents for their tireless labor and promote a system that rewards the next generation of doctors. And the Korea Jungong Daily brings us narrative B. Trainee doctors have made their position loud and clear, and it's now time for them to return to work and resume providing necessary health care. The entire dispute revolves around the looming population troubles that await South Korea, given its rapidly aging population. And the government is looking to take steps to avert a potential crisis. Meanwhile, young doctors don't believe that the situation is dire and doesn't merit a dramatic increase in medical school classrooms. Regardless of whether there's a medical crisis in the future, this strike is unnecessarily creating a medical disaster right now. The government has been patient, and it's time for doctors to come back. And the nerds have the final say today with saying there is a 50% chance that South Korea's fertility rate will be less than 0.747 children per woman in 2032. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, March 1st, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extract both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.